Thanks for joining me, Pete Holterin, for the Credentials Only Podcast, where you will be introduced to people who wear credentials while working behind the scenes to make events a success. This week's guest is Bronwyn Greer, the tournament director of the ATP Tours Fias Serafimico U.S. Men's Clay Court Championship in Houston. Full disclosure, I'm very happy to call that tournament one of our clients at Holter Media. Hopefully nothing I ask was too hard-hitting and might jeopardize that contract for us. A former varsity athlete in college, Bronwyn was also involved in working in sports as a student. She would then go on to grad school at the esteemed sports admin program at Ohio University. Her work in the industry has included being an overlay manager at the 2010 Olympics. Stay tuned. If you don't know what that is, you'll learn during this podcast. She also worked Super Bowls, NASCAR races, marathons, concerts, and, of course, in tennis. Although that is not a sport she envisioned for herself. I thought I was going to work in hockey, um, which now looking back seems so crazy, but I was Canadian. That's what you do, right? Every, every Canadian does hockey. Now in tennis, she's one of only a handful of female tournament directors on the men's tour. I never look at sports as a, I'm a female versus, you know, you're a male and we're both doing the same job. Um, to me, it's about who's doing the job and are you the best suited for it? The competitive juices that fueled her playing days did not necessarily leave her now that she is on the administrative side. I think any sports person would tell you that you are consistently competing with everybody else who's in your community to make sure that yours is the event that everyone wants to be at. Similarly, the adrenaline of practice and prep work paying off come game time is still alive and well. Seeing it all come together and be as perfect as it can be and the best experience for everybody is there's just something about that. That's what gets to me is that's why I continue to do it. While you listen to this podcast, visit credentialsonly.com for links with more information on many of the things that we will discuss during this episode. Without further ado, please enjoy credentials only featuring Bronwyn Greer. One of the things I found in my time in tennis is one of the first questions a lot of people ask is, so do you play? And not only do I know that you don't play, you weren't even going in to work in tennis when you wound up getting hooked up with the tournament you're now working for. How did this come to be? Most definitely not. I thought I was going to work in hockey, um, which now looking back seems so crazy, but I was Canadian. That's what you do, right? Every every Canadian does hockey. Um, No, I went to grad school and my internship was down here with the Texans and I moved back after school thought I could easily make some connections and find a job and um, interviewed actually to be a restaurant manager uh, to keep it in my field of my degree. (laughs) And um, it turned out to be Westside Tennis Club where the event used to be hosted. And the owner there looked through my resume and was immediately like, no, no, we have this tennis tournament. I want to train you to be the tournament director. And I was like, okay. Um, And I actually had to go home and Google what the event was and it was legit. And from then on, I kind of, you know, I knew what it was and, and definitely started to follow it a little bit more, but, um, obviously I follow it a lot now, but definitely was not ever where I saw myself being. <laughs> and, and you got to Westside, did a couple years there, and they also had a world team tennis franchise. So suddenly not only were you Ooh. learning to be a tournament director, you were thrown in and became general manager of a <laughs> professional sports team. 
Yeah, uh, that is honestly something I never thought I would have on my resume. Um, (laughs) You know, I think back now to those days, and I remember going to the first draft that I did for World Team Tennis, and Thomas Blake was our coach that year, and I would literally be picking up my phone and calling him every five minutes. Okay, next round, here's who's left, screenshotting him the list, because I knew nothing about it, but yet I had been sent to draft our team for the summer, which... Now looking back seems so crazy, but so I did two seasons of that um, and one tournament at River Oak, or at uh, Westside, and then you know everyone knows the story and it's moved to River Oaks, and I was lucky enough to um, find a position there and kind of move with it in a sense, if you will. But um, yeah, it's looking back; those were some crazy days. For the tennis fans, you know, World Team Tennis is a different thing. It is a team. You know, tennis is not necessarily always a team sport, but world team tennis basically does a barnstorming tour over three weeks of the summer and we'll just go town to town. And it it is different than the regular tour life. Having worked in both, how do you find those differences between world team tennis and the tour? You know, for world team tennis, it was different for me. I didn't actually travel with a team, but knowing the team as I did and the individuals who were on it, they lived at the club essentially for the three weeks of the summer that they were on our team. And so seeing what was there, which seemed to be crazy travel schedule, as you said, it's kind of that barn burner of getting in so many matches in such a short time. Um, I think it's a lot on them, but I think on the other side of it for the players who are on the tour and working year round, they're traveling almost every week. So in a sense, are three weeks in the same city a little bit easier and you kind of feel like you have that home base rather than a different city every week of the tour year round? I don't know. Um, I was reading an article today about someone who, you know, they, they're used to working from home and they travel so much throughout the year and they can set up an office anywhere. And I think for a tennis player, you have to learn to adapt to find your workout facility and make sure your routine can be on the road so that you don't feel like you're, you all are always moving around. Um, it's about finding what works for you. The same doesn't always work for everybody. Westside has a, an interesting history in tennis in that they did host the clay courts uh, from 2001 to 2008, but then they also, or 2007, excuse me, then they also had uh, the ATP's year in championship. So they were transitioning that yeah. facility from hard court to clay court and back within you know the space of 12 months, which is a they crazy undertaking. They had grass courts there. They also had a, a practice facility yep. for the Houston Rockets. There's a lot going on. And now the clay courts are at River Oaks Country Club, which has hosted its own tournament since the 30s. What's interesting at both Westside and at River Oaks is you have this big event, but it's just one event on the calendar at these facilities. Yeah. What's it like being part of that bigger puzzle? You know, you really have to take into account you called it a puzzle and it, it really is. You, you spend, you know, probably six or eight months out of the year watching that puzzle come together and each player is a piece of that. And you're wanting to make sure that you're fitting the best puzzle pieces into your week of the year. And that requires now watching more tennis than I ever thought I would watch, um, keeping track of rankings, how guys are playing, who's injured, when are they coming back? When are they projected to come back? There are so many moving pieces constantly that you have to take into account to make sure that your week is getting the best possible pieces, if you will, in this case, players. Um, And without kind of keeping track of that year round, you can't do that. 
I hear this a lot from people who work at golf tournaments and tennis tournaments. Oh, what do you do the other 53 weeks? And the best analogy I've heard is that, you know, have you ever planned a wedding? You don't just show up at the church. There's a lot that goes into it. It's the same for the tennis tournament. But I think it's interesting because you do have a year and you have a lot to do over the course of the year, but there isn't a lot of deadline pressure because that event, you know, you're, you're right now you're working on the 2021 event. It's 365 days away. You've got all the time in the world. How do you keep yourself on task? How do you give yourself the urgency so that you're not leaving everything until March 31st? (laughs) Uh, That would drive me crazy for one to leave it that long. Um, it's funny that you mentioned that people liken it to being a wedding planner, which I actually used to do. So, um, I think some of those skills have transferred into what I do now. And in tennis, um, I've always been a list maker. I, I, there's always a notepad. There's one next to me right now. Um, there is always a notepad that I have a constant and ever changing, ever updating to-do list that usually goes for about a week. And then I flip to a new page and I, take whatever I didn't get them the week before and move it to the next week. Um, like you said, there's not a, the deadline factor for me is a little bit different because it does shift so much over the course of a year. Um, we have to work with the club as well because we're hosted at a private country club. And so working with them to operate within you more often than not their deadlines. And so I know when the big events at the club are. So they Christmas season is huge for them. So I know that during the month of December, we're probably not getting a lot done on tournament, but come January, we can definitely get a lot accomplished. And so making sure that we schedule around them. But for me, it's, it really comes down to that notebook. Um, I lost one, one year and it really just, I felt like I had lost a part of my life because I was really without, you know, the notes I had taken on the previous year and notes that I take on a weekly basis or at meetings that, that book goes with me everywhere. Um, and to lose a part of that was, Oh man, you look back now and think, how did I, you know, you, you're essentially starting fresh. Um, but that it keeps all of my notes. I do a lot of highlighting. (laughs) There's the sense of satisfaction of scratching something off the list um, sometimes a Sharpie if you don't want to see it again. Um, but, um, it's, it really is for me, it's that kind of week to week. Um, when I look at a planner, I also use a paper planner despite technology and everything being able to be on your phone. I like to be able to see the whole month in advance. Um, you know, it's kind of when to plan things out and not to put six things on one day, and spread it out a little bit. It just makes it a little busy. It's, I'm a very visual person. It makes it a lot easier for me to, to look at and see. And, and you've got to be keeping track of so many different pieces of it because it, the global tennis tour is a huge operation with, you know, hundreds of players and you're one of around a hundred tournament directors in the world. And, uh, you know, you look at other leagues and teams, there's so many people involved but you're a a very small team. How big is your team? And obviously you bring in people to complement that. But as a result, I think one of the organization things is you're kind of switching hats a lot between the sponsorship person to the ticket sales, to the marketing, you know, how do you manage that workload and juggling that? Well, you asked about our team. There's two of us um, that work on this event year round. And I would say in the truest sense of the word, we, we have become 
we've become like a set of doubles partners. Um, you almost know what the other person is going to do before they even do it. Um, we're very good now at reading what one, the other person's body language. And, you know, some days take a little bit easy. Some days you don't. Um, but knowing that the other person, we each have our specific set of goals and knowing that the other person is handling what they need to do. Um, ultimately as a tournament director, obviously it's on me to continue to check in and make sure that parts of, uh, her job are being completed, but it's that sense of knowing and just now it's been five years that we've worked together. So you get a pretty good camaraderie that you, you feel like things are being accomplished. Um, I think for the two of us, when we get closer to tournament week, we both have a whiteboard in our office. <laughs> Mine has all of the players on it and who we're talking to, who's asked for a wild card and kind of keeping track of results that way. And then hers has, we go together on different ideas and we before the week has even started, we have a 2021 or, you know, whatever the next year is, we have that list going of things we already know we want to improve for the next year. Um, and so I think between the two of us and just keeping it visual and out there um, is, is very helpful. You call it tournament week and, and there's a lot that goes into it and there are ebbs and flows of when you get busy and the six weeks or so leading up to the tournament gets pretty busy, but tournament week itself is a different beast. How do you balance that? Cause those are crazy days, long hours. How do you come down after being there all day and, and having to entertain and put on the event at night? How do you kind of turn it off so that you can get that much needed sleep in a week where there's not going to be much sleep? What's your process for managing your yourself really physically and mentally through that toughest time of the year? You know, <laughs> I bought a Peloton bike last year, about a month before the tournament. And that truly was a saving grace. Um, I, for me, I've always been somebody who enjoys that kind of hour away from the rest of the world. Um, you, you don't have your phone on you. You don't have anything else on you. You're just, your focus gives you that time to focus on you. And like you said, when you're spending that week, putting on so many different events, not just tennis and looking at what it takes to make sure that everyone else is happy and enjoying that week. You're doing so much for other people. You have to make sure to take time for you as well. And that bike, I think I got on it probably every other day, at least in the morning for a little bit, even if it was just 30 minutes, um, gave me that sense of, okay, I'm still, I'm still here. I'm still me. Um, and doing that was really good. You're in Houston, which is a pretty i mean it's a major market here in the in the yeah. u.s and it's a pretty competitive market obviously the pro sports are well represented mls nba major league baseball nfl uh other activities though the the rodeo comes just before you guys uh take to the court and even just down the road southwest southwest in austin there's so much going on how have you found carving out a niche for your event in that crowded space <laughs> um you're right there there are a lot and not just in our space we typically are the same week as the masters the final four gets thrown in there so we 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 like to say we're in one of the the greatest weeks of the year if you will from a sports perspective why shouldn't we be in that week too um and so you know when it comes to that niche market our river oaks has a lot of history behind it a lot of tradition um, since 1931, they've been having, hosting a tournament at the club. And I think from a membership perspective, and now as a greater community of the entire Houston tennis community, we feel very strongly about 
this is home for us. This is where tennis belongs for this week. And I think people feel not just that sense of it's something they want to go see, but also a little bit of sense of that ownership of we've had this for so long that it's, we all want to make it a success and be a part of it. You know, we have ball kids who their parents were ball kids and before them, their parents were ball kids. Um, Season tickets get transferred down throughout families and through, through wills. I mean, it's just, it's a, it is a part of, I think, the person who is the bigger Houston tennis fan. Um, and for us, we've worked really hard to make sure that it's not just tennis. It's also kind of that social scene for the week. Um, you know, we do a fashion show and we've got a player's party and, and just we really try hard to make it somewhere that the community wants to be for the week um, and come out and feel a part of it. So it's all about the community. <laughs> With that ingrained tradition and that community aspect, you're you're on pretty solid ground. You've got a pretty good base yet. I get the sense from, from watching you work that there still is some competitive juice in there and that um, while you may not necessarily be competing with the Astros or the Rockets in terms of getting people to attend the event, you still in your mind are competing with them on the experience you deliver. Is that fair? And how do you, how do you try to grow year over year to keep up that level of competition against MLB and NFL and NBA. Absolutely. I mean, we, while we might feel like we have it established, you're, I think any sports person would tell you that you are consistently competing with everybody else who's in your community to make sure that yours is the event that everyone wants to be at. And yours is the one that they're talking about and is in the paper and people don't miss. Whereas you might miss a couple of baseball games or you might miss one of the football games, but for us being one week, we want you to be there every day if you can, but also to make sure that it's, it's once a year on your calendar and you can't miss it. It has to be that can't miss. I got to be there kind of event. And so for us, we take a lot of, um, I guess, perspective from what other events do and what's successful there. Um, even when I, I think my fiance would tell you that when I, we go to a sporting event, it, it's challenging for me to drop the work atmosphere and think about just having a good time. It's more, oh, they're doing that or look at that, even as simple as a sign or what something looks like. But it's all, it is all about the fan experience and how... I experienced something is obviously very different from how I think the general fan would experience something, but wanting to know what their experience is like. Um, for us, it's taking ideas from them. Um, I travel, I'm lucky enough to travel to other tournaments around the world and seeing, you can always learn something from somebody. Um, I think the example that I use the most is probably the flowers at Wimbledon, which if you've ever been, I know you've been Pete a few times, but everybody that's something everybody looks at you see it on tv and it's just so well done and so immaculate i mean i think they joke about it but they probably cut the grass with scissors <laughs> we don't go that far but you know the flowers under our stadium now we took that idea from them um and made it our own and turned it into something but it ultimately was a way that we could mimic someone who is really honestly the best in the game um, and take that and apply it to our own event so like you and your fiance go to the rodeo and you watch the concert. And I mean, are you coming home and getting out that notebook and jotting down a couple of things that you noticed <laughs> um, that night? Is, I mean, yeah. Are you that meticulous on it? Uh, it's usually not getting out the notebook, but I definitely take pictures on my phone and email them to myself at the office. <laughs> okay. so that, 
the next day when I get there, they're in my inbox. Um, Haley and I will do a lot of that. That's who she works with me. We do a lot of emailing pictures back and forth when we're at different events of, Hey, this is a good idea. We should look at this or can we do this sign better? Or who is this? What company is providing this service? Um, just, you know, you're always looking for that best in class experience. So you're not exclusively pen and paper. There is a little bit of digital infiltration to your... Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Namely, because I don't take the pen and paper when I go to an event. Um, and I take my phone. But I'll take notes on my phone and then email it to myself. And that list <laughs> will stay in my inbox until I've either addressed everything that's on it or figured out a way to do it for the next year. There are probably just over 100 professional tour level events in, in the world. Um, a number of them are combined with men and women, some just women, some just men. How collaborative are you to be able to get, you, you said you were able to travel to some of these tournaments, but to the ones you don't necessarily get to travel to, how much collaboration, how much can you guys learn and, and grow from each other? I know the NFL has a secret shopper program where they go and scout out other people's stadiums and then provide feedback to that franchise. In the world of tennis, are you guys pushing each other, helping each other, or is it kind of dog-eat-dog world? You know, I like to think that there is that everybody help each other mentality. I, I think, you know, we all serve to get better if everyone is helping each other. Um, I know I can only speak to my experience from it, but this year, for example, we wanted to make some changes to our player dining menu. And so I reached out to the ATP um, some of the supervisors and just said, you know, who, who has the best player food, where, where do the players come home and talk about all the time. And the three or four tournaments that they gave me, they also gave me the tournament director's name. And when I, I sent an email, just asking, you know, would you mind sharing your menus? We're looking to, to make some improvements or changes. And all three of them within the next day had written me back. Here's our menu. No problem sharing. Um, happy to help. Um, actually the one, the tournament director in Monte Carlo, I think was the nicest and said, I, you bet you didn't know, but River Oaks was always one of my favorite events. If you go back and look at your champions board, I'm on there. And I thought, Oh, so it is it, tennis is a much smaller world than you think. Um, and so I like to think that that, that cooperation or sense of the community that we feel here in Houston extends itself to the greater tennis community as a whole. I did within the, AT the awards board though, and make sure his name was on there. And make sure it's spelled right because Jelko is not a. Uh, oh, an I easy know. He <laughs> <laughs> said. Uh, within the ATP, the men's professional tennis tour, there are sixty events, a little over sixty events, uh, and could count on one hand the number of events that have female tournament directors. What does that mean to you that you are in that elite group and kind of you know breaking through that glass ceiling, or is it a glass ceiling? <laughs> I mean, I think most would say it is that kind of glass ceiling there. There has long been a history in tennis of people who've played or grew up in it or are a former player, are tournament directors. Um, I don't think I ever saw myself as someone who wanted to make sure I was breaking through a glass ceiling, but I also knew that yeah, going back to my, I wanted to work in hockey days. I also my dream of being in events, I was like, you know what, I want to run the Super Bowl one day. You know, there's, it was a, an aspiration of, I just want to run one of the biggest events. Um, it wasn't a, I want to be the female who does this. It was more just about, I want to be, this is what I want. And it was my dream. Um, I think one of the others was being lucky enough to work on the Olympics in 2010 in Vancouver. 
I wouldn't have ever thought that that was something I wanted to do, but the chance of doing it was once in a lifetime, especially being in my home country, um, was amazing. And it's just one of those, I never look at sports as a, I'm a female versus, you know, you're a male and we're both doing the same job. Um, to me, it's about who's doing the job and are you the best suited for it? Um, and in this circumstance, I'm very lucky to be the best suited for the job that, that I'm doing. Um, I think the only thing that really comes into play is obviously I can't go into a locker room and congratulate somebody on a great win. I have to wait outside the media center or, you know, outside the locker room. Um, and so I think there's a little bit of that camaraderie there, but, um, we try to make sure it's known. Um, I try to make sure that I'm seeing each of the players, whether it's when they get there or in the players lounge. Um, I'll never forget. Someone shared with me a story that one of the guys who was in our finals a few years ago, didn't know I was a female until he saw me on TV. (laughs) That's something I need to fix. And it goes back to that. I can't go in the locker room aspect. And so if you don't run into me in the lounge or, you know, you're not asking me for something extra, you might not know. Um, And so I'm trying to, you know, I make sure now to put myself out there and make sure that these guys know, because ultimately I'm the one who's asking them to come back year after year. And you want to have that relationship with them. And it's different from the world team tennis where you've got your team and, and this is your group and you're working closely with that group of, you know, a half dozen players or so to you're welcoming in 30, 40 players who you're just one stop of many. Yeah. And that's pressure to not only get to know them, but also to give them the best possible experience. Cause you do want that repeat customer up from the players. It's not just the fans, but you're trying to, keep the players to dress up the food for them and all that. So what is it like? I mean, you're eventually just a stop on the, on a, you know, you're one of the rings in the circus for these guys. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, I think for us, because for us, community is so important. We, we try to make them feel as though they're a part of our community. Um, we do that at River Oaks in a little bit different way than I think most tournaments do is, you know, some of the guys will stay in private housing. And so for them, that's a way that they automatically feel at home, if you will, for the sense. They're not staying in just another hotel on the tour for the week. They're staying in someone else's home. And granted, it's a little bit different here. They may have a chef or a driver at their disposal, but it still ultimately is a home and you have a bedroom and a living room versus you're just staying in that kind of box of a hotel room that you have. Um, Making sure that they have access to things that they don't normally have access to or may not have at their disposal, getting out and play golf. While we realize you're here for a tennis tournament, the chance to get out and play golf just gives you that couple hours to step away from what might be your daily grind. Um, Really trying to make sure that it feels more like home for them. Um, We try to make small changes every year that it's, it gives them that little bit of sense of, of wanting to return. Um, Their players and their families have always felt very welcome here. Um, We have some who I think, you know, John Isner, for example, has stayed with the same family for, almost 10 years now, maybe eight. Um, that family gets, they know him so well now they were at his wedding. I mean, I don't know how many other tournaments in the world would say, Oh yeah, our, our fans are ending up at players wedding. Um, you know, I think that's, it's a little bit unique in that aspect. You mentioned 2020 Vancouver. What is an overlay manager? (laughs) Well, it's 2010. 2010. Sorry. Um, (laughs) I would, that yes. would be something to do right now. <laughs> um, 2010 to Vancouver. Yeah, 2020. What is an overlay manager? Yeah. 
Um, you know, I think it's a little bit uh, all encompassing, if you will. Um, overlay in, in the broadest sense was signage and scope of what things look like outside of a venue. Um, I did, I've moved more Moduloc fencing in those couple of months than I ever want or would ever want to see again. Um, <laughs> putting up magnetometers in floods. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot of the outside. So it was a lot of ingress and egress of the fans into and out of opening and closing ceremony and hockey venues. Um, I also managed the building that the volunteers were housed out of for that space and <laughs> like sweeping kitchen shelves that hadn't been used in years and things coming out that you just weren't really sure they should be in there. Um, painting, I mean, doing everything from equipping an elevator to have secure access only to one floor and not to the next two floors, depending on what button you push, things like that, that you just don't really think about when you go to a venue and that's the way things are. You just, Oh, that's already, it was already done. We were on the behind the scenes part of transferring a building over that hadn't previously been used like that. So what's the timeline and I'm sure it's different everywhere you go based on the facility you're using and, and whatnot, but you know, h- how far out from the games were you there having to do that? And are they making those decisions? Uh, it depends on what part of the team you're on. I, I didn't come in until December. So for me, it was only three months out. Um, but for friends that I've made there and kept there, they were there three, four years ahead of time. I think a lot of people do a jump from, you know, one winter Olympics to the next. Um, obviously the team as with us in tennis and our one week event, the team ramps up the closer you get to the event and there's more people working on it, more hands on deck, if you will. Um, there's only so much that you can do. And same for us now, there's only so much you can do to a city without shutting down the city or your venue that you're in, um, prior to that has an impact, a greater impact on the community as a whole. And so for us, you know, for our one week tennis tournament, it's a couple of days before we're doing final setup and offices and starting to close down different parts of the locker rooms and things like that. But for the Olympics, it was okay. Three weeks before, four weeks before we're starting to set up all of the fencing I mentioned, because you're starting to create all those entry and exit areas and how people get through them. And it's not until probably two weeks before that you start to put gates on them that, you know, you do get locked. And then a week before you're starting to look at, okay, now we're closing them because we need to make sure that we're maintaining that secure perimeter the entire time. So it's, it's a little bit different at an event as large as the Olympics <laughs> and the number of people, but yeah, a lot of moving fences. The operations piece is moving fences and it's <laughs> hard work. It's a lot of logistics and you got to have everything buttoned up to be doing it. It's not the sexiest thing working in sports. It's not. But it's got to be pretty darn rewarding because you know real quick if what you designed and planned is working or not. Absolutely. Uh, You know, I think I've never seen it come more true for that. We literally were building platforms on the ground to put magnetometers on top of or the metal detectors because they can't be in the ground because they'll get wet and what, I mean, they're just the things that you wouldn't have thought of. Vancouver got so much rain that year. (laughs) It was, you know, the poor guys who were up on the mountain, just blowing and making snow nonstop. Um, And then once you see it kind of come together and I think everyone will probably remember (laughs) 
that at opening ceremonies, the three torches and only two of them went up. And then obviously for closing ceremonies, they learned a little bit of a joke out of it. And then the third one came up, but um, it's that kind of thing that you just have to be able to run with it. Um, and while that, we, those of us who work in it would, that's what, you know, you forever remember that. You also remember that sense of everyone came in and absolutely loved it. And it was the most amazing thing. I look back and I remember the bright blue jacket that was our uniform. <laughs> that was the Van Ock colors. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those weird things that you remember that you take away from the event, but, um, you're all, you're all really in the trenches together. Um, and even now for, you know, a one week tennis event, you're still, I, I think after three weeks leading up and the week of tennis, by the time you get to the week following, you're just, I, I don't want to talk to anybody. I'm done. You know, you're, you get to that point. Um, but it's, the adrenaline keeps you going. Um, uh, but seeing it come, seeing it all come together and be as perfect as it can be. And the best experience for everybody is there's just something about that. And that's what gets to me is that's why I continue to do it. So how do you prepare yourself for the completely unexpected? Because ultimately at every single event, <laughs> even sometimes every day of an event, there's, there's something you yeah. never dreamt you'd be dealing with that happens. It could be a plumbing issue. It could be power issue. Could be uh, uh, any like number of things. Go out of your stadium. Take your pick. Exactly. Wow. How do you? <laughs> yeah. You know, get it's yourself funny. ready to put out those fires that are inevitable. Yeah, I think it's your it's it's an internal mentality, um, and it's a people always use the, that duck under the water, you know, and you can, if you look above the water, everyone's totally calm, but under the water, their legs are moving like crazy, but they just look like the most serene animal as they're moving across the pond. Um, the number of people, it never ceases to amaze me. The number of people come up to me like, you look so relaxed. I'm like, yeah, great. I mean, it's going, everything's going great. That is what you have to say on the outside. But yet if you go behind my office door, you might see a very different picture. But, um, I, I always think back to, um, the first year I was at River Oaks and it was the first year they'd had an ATP event. They had always, they had forever run, you know, since 31 run their own event. And it was, um, kind of more the international and, uh, van who was my boss before I took over the role. We had what we call black Monday where everything that could go wrong did go wrong. Um, and it was all little, it felt like it was just little stuff and it was all behind the scenes, like to the, to the ordinary observer, you wouldn't have noticed. But for us, it was getting a radio call. Hey, we're missing this or we don't have this. And we just kept looking at each other thinking like, what in earth is going on? Like, <laughs> this can't be happening. I mean, it was, we thought for sure we're, we're never having a tennis tournament again. The ATP hates us. Um, and we still, I mean, this, we now thankfully can look back and laugh at it, but it was, um, you just, you have to maintain that inner calm and outer calm as well. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it really goes back to just making sure that from the outside, everyone would have no idea that anything was going wrong. Um, and as long as you stay calm, that helps maintain other people to stay calm. Um, but, you know, behind those closed doors, <laughs> there might be some swearing, might be some throwing things, but it happens and you just deal with it. Um, you have to be able to just, it's thinking on your feet and being able to quickly adapt to whatever situation comes at you. There's always a way, um, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. Uh, and that's, you know, I think when it comes to events, there's no truer words because you're going to make it happen no matter what. You just have to figure out what the best way to solve it is. 
revisiting the Olympics for a second, you know, the Olympics are such a big event, the size, the scope, it's, it's really hard to, to quantify because it's just, is it's a different level than anything else in, in sport or any other event really. And I think in particular in a, a sport mad country like Canada, you mean and hockey, hockey? Uh, curling, come curling, on now. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> And a very prideful country. Yeah. To be a part of hosting that global event, of welcoming the world to Canada for the Winter Olympics, that had to just be an unbelievable cascade yeah. of emotions. I mean, what, what is the experience like of it getting closer, of them being there when the opening ceremonies are happening? seeing yeah. all these athletes coming in and all these spectators and sponsors from all over the world coming in to your country, to an event you've helped make happen. How does that make you feel when you're doing it? Uh, pretty unbelievable. Um, and I, I can't, I mean, I was such a small piece of it, but you, everything, everyone contributes, but it is, it's truly that sense of nationalistic pride that you can never imagine feeling unless you're going to it. And I had friends who came and visited and my brothers were both there and you just, as a group, everyone is just so excited to be there. I think, you know, sport in a sense transcends most other things when they talk about bringing people together and having that, no matter what, everyone celebrates that great, unbelievable moment. Um, for us that year, it was obviously winning the gold medal in hockey. And I had the option, like i I'm pretty sure I cried. I was in the building when the goal got scored and you just, you could, the emotion was so strong um, that you just can't see that. And even all the other countries, you know, every, everyone as a whole is just happy to be there. Fans, athletes, um, you know, when you're watching opening ceremonies and somebody walks in with a flag for every country, you're just the athletes, the smiles on their faces. There is, there's really nothing like it. Um, It's, I will, I will never, ever forget it. Um, I'm very, I consider myself very lucky to have had the opportunity, but it is for Canada in a sense, it was because it was winter Olympics, obviously made, you know, we're a very winter sport friendly country. Um, I think just as a nation, everyone was so, so excited for it. You're so prideful. And, and you know, these athletes, they train all the time. They participate in these competitions all the time, just like when they show up at River Oaks, I mean, they're professional tennis players. They're, they're pros. They're just, it's another week. They're doing their job. You've worked countless events. You've done marathons. You've done stuff with NFL. You've done a ton of events, but the Olympics are different. You kind of go in eyes wide open. That's true for the athletes, true for the workers. It is just a, a completely different type of event experience. And I think that's why here in you know 2020, to see the Tokyo Games delayed for a year, it, it does just kind of take your breath away because it's like, yeah. wow, it's just such a such a big thing to get completely moved in the calendar. Yeah. My heart breaks for the the staff and the athletes. I mean, basically you're taking everything that you've timed from an events perspective. You've timed everything so perfectly to come together to be ready for that. And you now have a year of essentially sitting and waiting. And obviously you can do more and prepare, but you're, what you had worked for is now been pushed back a year. And I think from an athlete perspective, your training, you spent the last four years doing everything you could to peak at this particular moment. And now you have to push that peak and train for a whole nother year. I think there's just, 
it'll be interesting to see what the, the broader scope impact of that is when we get closer to it. And, and depending on when sports, you know, kind of comes back online, if you will, when people can actually start competing again, um, leading up to the Olympics, it's, it is, it's, it's hard, I think for everyone who's involved. Speaking of being an athlete and competing, you have an athletic background yourself. <laughs> what did you play in, and where, uh, and, and how, how involved were you in participating in sports growing up? Uh, well, funny, <laughs> I played soccer since the time I was like four. Uh, I played all through high school, but then I got to college and I, I had moved around some in, in uh, high school between Florida and then moving back to Canada. And so it wasn't in the same shape I was to make a, um, what I thought, uh, you know, a varsity team and had a friend convince me to try out for what at the time was a club rugby team. Uh, and then, um, the, we became a varsity squad. Um, and so I played three years of varsity rugby, which most people would have no idea or even suspect. Um, it's a little crazy, but it's a li- also a little fun. Um, I met a great group of girls and we had a blast. Um, but it's, it is definitely not something I do anymore. I'm, you know, I like the way my body feels now versus broken <laughs> leg or whatever. Um, <laughs> anything can happen in that sport, but um, I, when I was in undergrad, I also, I was a manager and trainer for our men's volleyball team and always thought I wanted to be a trainer. Um, and then being their manager gave me that kind of, oh, I can do the organizational thing. And I had to keep a list of how many guys were coming on the trip and who's getting on the, but goes back to that list thing that I like to do. Um, and so I, uh, I just really, you know, I, I realized very quickly, um, towards the end of undergrad that I wanted to do the event side, not the, not the trainer side. I had a guy back, he did, he was going out for a block and his thumb dislocated. And it was like, basically if his thumb was here, it was like hanging backwards on his hand. And I just, we had to take him to the hospital and he was holding on to my hand the whole time. Like, well, we go. And then for the rest of the season, we had to tape it up with a, I mean, it was just things like that. I'm like, you know, I, this isn't maybe for the rest of my life. <laughs> so. Let's, let's keep the magnetometers dry. That's a better, yeah, right. better course exactly. of action. <laughs> there's as an athlete playing soccer, playing rugby, there's a lot of adrenaline um, and getting up for the competition. Do you still find that though on the business side, on the operation side of getting some of that adrenaline rush of that, that energy to get up for the event. <laughs> I do. Um, you know, I think probably the week or two weeks right before the tournament are my most, like, I feel the most productive and the most, you know, ready to go. And I'm like, okay, we got this. And every day is something new. And you're, it's cause you get to that point where like, if it's not done now, it's not happening. <laughs> so, um, you know, you're doing last minute setup and last minute player things and, finalizing all basically everything that goes into that week and your, your staff starts to increase and you have your ticket office opening. Um, and just every day is something that's a little bit different. And I think for me, that's what it is about the event, you know, industry and life itself is no matter how well you plan for it, you know, you said it, how do you plan for the unexpected? Something is always going to happen that you don't expect. And so every day is truly a little bit different. Um, in that sense of a day. And if we get to a day, it's usually closer in the end of the tournament week and we're all kind of sitting around and radio chatters at a minimum. You're like, 
okay, what's, what's like, things are going too well, almost, um, <laughs> you know, you, you get to that point where it's a little bit of what's next. Um, but every day is truly something different. So it, do, it does keep me going in that sense. Um, and then I think same as an athlete after a big competition, the week after the tournament, you just kind of take that deep breath and whew, okay, everything went well and move on to next year. Um, but and while you can't necessarily prepare for all the things that are going to break out on your watch, um, you did go to one of the more esteemed university graduate programs when it comes to learning about sports and management and, and administration of sports. What led you to Athens, Ohio? <laughs> um you know, it's funny. I, my first time I was ever in Athens, I worked, I worked at a bar in college and we did a promotional tour around, um, Ohio and Michigan and dropped off flyers to come visit our bar, host their fraternities and sororities, host their formals there. And we drove, I remember vividly driving through Athens and, um, there's this one fraternity house that's kind of on a corner and there was like a couch out front. I mean, it was just, disastrous looking as I think most people would expect a fraternity has to look. And I just remember thinking like, this is so crazy, but I loved the way the town looked and felt. Um, and then, um, researching more and looking into that program, I knew that if I wanted to continue to work in sports, my best option was going to the U S, um, to get a master's in sports administration. And so looking at the programs that were available at the time, um, went down and did a campus visit and then they bring you in for interview day and you get to meet people who are in the current program. And I think it was the students there at the time that really they're your best sales market for it. Um, you know, they're speaking of the classes they get to take and the internship opportunities they got to have that were a part of the program because of the alumni network that we have. And it was astounding. I mean, I, you mentioned the NFL earlier. I had the chance to do um, the Super Bowl. Well, when I was in Detroit, which was freezing, but I had the opportunity to do that. I had the opportunity to go and work at NASCAR um, as a two, and I think it was a two week internship for the um, Las Vegas Motor Speedway out there. It's just the opportunities that were presented as a part of that program, as well as the course content um, and the professors who are teaching it just, it seemed like a no brainer. Um, and I loved every minute of it. Yeah. There, there, it strikes me as a program that has three really strong parts is that course and that core curriculum yeah. has that internship experience, but then you also briefly touched on that network and yeah. it is whether, it, and whether you're getting it through whatever grad program you're in or networking with the other tournament directors, it seems like that community that you can build for yourself within the sport industry yeah. is a pretty big factor in being successful in this business. Is that something you would agree with? And what would you advise someone to do to help grow their network? You know, it's everyone uses the term networking. Um, and I think it's more relationship building, um, the, the ability or obviously, you know, going to Ohio, you have that kind of built in alumni network that we've all said, if you, call an OU person in sports ad, they're going to, they'll pick up the phone or they may call you, they'll call you back right away, but they will get back to you. And that's something that is invaluable. You can call somebody who has a position that may be something you've dreamed of and ask for advice. Um, it, that's something that is very well known about our alumni network. Um, but it, when it comes to once you've graduated and you're in the industry yourself, 
it's going to different events. It's talking to people. It's how you talk to people. And it's, it is, it's honestly about building a relationship with them. Um, not just a, sometimes I think people look at networking as a, how can I get to that next level? And it needs to be less about that and more about you and what you want for yourself. And not when you make the phone call, don't have it be about, well, how, what can this person do for me? But what can I learn from this person rather? Um, and I think that is more important to take away from talking to someone than it is about, well, how, why didn't they get me that job? It's, they don't need to get you a job. You need to get you a job. <laughs> um, and so when it comes down to it, it's you're asking them for advice and really listening rather than just constantly thinking about what could come. We've talked a lot about learning as we go. And I I'd like to end with the set pieces. Um, and these are a few questions that I'm asking everybody who, who comes on and it involves a little bit of just how do you learn and what do you learn and how do you take in new information to fill up those notebooks that you have? Uh, <laughs> so the first set piece, podcasts, newsletters, what, where are some of the sources that you routinely go to, to have basically continuing education? Sure. Um, I will be fully honest. Being on this podcast is my first podcast. Um, it's just not something I have ever, I think for me, I'm a visual person. I always have been, even when it goes back to my textbooks and highlighting sections in them, um, the same, same still applies. I still, I know you can get everything online, but I still get the paper printed version of sports business journal delivered to my house every two weeks. And I read every week. I read that pretty voraciously. And that's where a lot of my notes come from. Um, you know, it's some of them, if it's a really good article, I have a few pinned to the wall in my office of things that I'm like, Oh, we can, how can I adapt this to what I'm doing? Um, then when it comes to, you know, the newsletters that come in daily, they SBJ also sends one daily to your box. Um, front office sports is another one that I've started to like as well. Um, but I feel like I need to get more into the podcast as I do this. Cause I like to hear people talk about it. I recommend credentials only. Um, And the the hard thing is for you with the Peloton is you've got someone in your face talking to you already. So it's probably hard to Peloton and podcasts, but I know (laughs) when I'm working out, yeah, when I'm working out, I'm good with the podcast in my ear, but I don't have that screen in front encouraging me. And I don't have a long daily commute either. I think that's probably why I've (laughs) never gotten into it because I drive, you know, maybe 15 minutes to the office, but I don't know. We'll see. Well, I recommend you start with this podcast and then grow from there. Um, it falls there, you know, there's obviously no shortage of social media, which ones are you checking in? And are there particular accounts of people who you're like, I I learn every time that person sends a tweet or posts on LinkedIn. Um, (laughs) I follow more tennis players than I know what to do with, Uh, (laughs) you know, the grand slams, um, the governing body. I follow a lot of tennis. Um, Twitter is kind of my go-to that's like quick and gives you kind of the, the quick highlights. Um, I <laughs> CNN as much as it pains me, but I just sometimes need that like quick, here's the latest news, um, to keep up with it. ESPN, obviously, um, in tennis, uh, John Wortham is one that I follow a lot. He does a lot of it seems you pretty in the know um, and gets things out there pretty quickly just for the other side of the coin. Um, but it's, it is a lot of tennis. Doesn't have to be specific to sports, but books, what are books that not necessarily that you enjoy reading, but books you recommend to people. Hmm. 
The other follow I do is Forbes. Actually, I just thought about that. Gets you outside okay. of news. It's a, it's more of a learning educational thing. Um, man, I I do I love to read. Love 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 it. Um, I think one of the books that I read and it now is a w- little while ago, but was Andre Agassi's biography Open. Mm. One as somebody who had just gotten into tennis, I did, had no clue of everything that he had done, um, and it's I found it pretty amazing. Um, it's it's quite a story. Um, so I would always tell someone to read that. Um, the Phil Knight book, Nike Shoe Dog, uh, is another just kind of unbelievable story, but and true story. And I think to see what they started with and ha- where they got to and are now is unbelievable. Um, and then I do also, those are obviously both true stories, but the other one, I, I like to read things around the Olympics. Um, and I just read Boys on the Boat. And it's about during World War II, the U.S., uh, men's rowing team that went over and beat the German rowing team against all odds. And it was kids basically from like different schools all around the country. They had put them together and it just, their feelings and how it was, you know, going back to during the Olympics, that sense of nationalistic pride for these kids, kids, they, you know, they were not even out of college yet was unbelievable. Um, and to go and make such an impact on the world stage at a time that was so crucial in everyone's history. Uh, was a pretty unbelievable story. So I, you'll notice it tends to trend towards sports books a lot. Um, yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, what's <laughs> streaming, whether it's music or shows, what's, what's streaming right now for you, especially Ooh. now that you have a little more time than usual. Yeah. Pandora always. Uh, it's probably always in the bottom corner of my screen it gets muted if I have a call or whatnot, but it just, the music in the background, it's usually country, uh, not just because I live in Texas. Uh, <laughs> I do generally enjoy it. Um, I think if I had hard rock banging out in the middle of the workday, people might come into the office a little bit differently. But um, And then TV, ooh, Netflix. There's been a lot of Netflix lately. I just finished season three of Ozark. It's a pretty solid cliffhanger at the end. Ooh, no spoilers, no spoilers. Yeah, no spoilers. Um, what else do I'm watching? Oh, uh, I just finished. I really like worked my way through it pretty quickly. Um, was all American on Netflix as well. It's based on okay. a true story, which I need to look up and see what that story was, but similar to Friday night lights, but football kind of different parts of California. It was good. Favorite sports memory as a kid. Oh man. As a kid. Is it bad that it's donuts? No, not at all. Um, I started, we started playing, I started, I talked about it earlier. I started playing soccer when I was four and my parents would take us every weekend after our soccer games. I have two brothers and we would go to Tim Hortons, obviously, because Canadian and um, get, we would each get our own little snack pack of Timbits. And that was like, the highlight of me for the weekend was like, I got to play soccer and then I, I knew donuts was coming. Um, that was just, Oh man. And then <laughs> it's, I think my next, no, it's really the donuts. It's really, <laughs> maybe that's why Good I need to run so much, but Tim Horton's definitely a great memory. Uh, even as an adult, I think, you know, Tim bits as an adult and especially the coffee. That's a win right there for sure. I get it every time I go home. It'd be rude not to. 
Uh, last question for you. This is called credentials only. That's one of the things that, that we get working in this business is credentials. Do you collect your credentials? And if so, where is that collection? I most definitely do. I have quite the collection of, I guess, credentials and the lanyards associated with them. It's just kind of a, it's a lot easier souvenir, to be honest, than buying a piece of merchandise from every <laughs> event that you work. Um, although I definitely tend to do that as well sometimes too. So, um, but the what to do with them, so far they are sitting in a uh, wicker basket in my office at home. I haven't figured out the best thing to do with them. I'm definitely open to suggestions, I guess I could say, because um, I would like them to be up at some point. I think it's just such a neat way to show everything that you've been a part of. And, but I want to figure out a way that I can add on to it as the years go by. So um, it's, yeah, I, I could never throw those away. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I really appreciate the time and uh, sharing your expertise and your experience with us today on Credentials Only. So thanks so much, Bronwyn Greer. Of course. Anytime. Talk to you soon. I'm thinking I'm not the only one craving some Tim Hortons right now. I want to thank Bronwyn for the time. That was a great conversation. As I mentioned at the top of this episode, you can find links to quite a few of the things that we referenced during our conversation on credentialsonly.com, as well as listing out all the links from what Bronwyn referenced during the set pieces segment. Thanks for checking out Credentials Only. Let me know what you thought by leaving a review wherever you listen to your podcast. Please also give us a follow on your favorite social media channels. And when you head to credentialsonly.com, drop us your email address so we can slide into your inbox when we have a new episode to share.